The Nuts and Bolts of Writing, Season Two, a podcast where we talk about literature, the ins and outs of writing, and how to actually start writing. Hi, everyone. Today we have two very special guests. Authors and editors Elizabeth and Nancy Jorgensen, a writing and publishing mother and daughter duo, noting a lack of middle grade and young adult books featuring female sports heroes, they collaborated with their Olympian sister and daughter to inspire the next generation. As a result, they co-authored Gwen Jorgensen, USA's first Olympic gold medal triathlete, and Go Gwen Go, a family's journey to Olympic gold. I've provided links to buy these books, as well as another book they worked together, Sijo, Korea's Poetry Form, in the description. As a brief introduction, Elizabeth Jorgensen is an award-winning high school language arts teacher and the author of Hacking Student Learning Habits, Times Ten Publications. Nancy Jorgensen is a retired choral music teacher and the author of two music education books. So. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth and Nancy. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Right. So to dive into the questions, the first question is: Why do you think there is a lack of books on female athletes? And how did you feel about this as the family of a triathlon champion? I think a lot of it just has to do with history. You know, we just marked the 50th anniversary of Title IX um, when women were, the law was passed giving women more rights in educational institutions. And I think prior to that, there just weren't as many female athletes. And then when when we got some more rights and um, females started to come to the fore, the history has been sort of short. And so, you you know, you hear about all these male athletes um, and there, there just isn't that much information in the books out there about female athletes. I think that follows the same as media. You know, you look at your sports center or um, your sports publications, and although they're doing a better job now of covering women's sports, it's still not equal, right? They don't give the same amount of coverage. I'm thinking of the NCAA tournament. We've got the men and the women going on right now, and the majority of the coverage focuses on the men. We were watching golf yesterday. The same thing, you know, you see all these men and we were watching the documentary Full Swing about all the men in pro golf and going to the live um, league. And yeah, you just don't see that much about the LPGA. Mm -hmm, exactly. I think that goes for every sport, you know, especially, you know, um, basketball, you know, for example, many people online, they even have this bias against the women's basketball teams. And they're always, you know, making these jokes about it, unfortunately. We were looking for comps when we were writing this middle grade book, and we couldn't find that many about female sports heroes. Um, and so, you know, we were really happy to be able to put one out in the market. So if there is a young person who wants to read about a female athlete, at least, you know, our book is one option for them. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So that leads to our second question. Why do you think it is important to tell Gwen's story? How will her story impact the younger generations? 
Go ahead, Elizabeth. Get some yeah, thoughts. You know, I mean, I Gwen is an average Wisconsin girl, and she grew up loving swimming, but she never made a Olympic trial team. She wasn't recruited heavily um, for scholarships going into Division One for college. But she just kept working at it, and she kept listening to the people around her who said, you have a talent, um, and Gwen, she kept trying, you know, and so I think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned there for people that you don't have to be the best from the moment you start your sport or even, you know, through your collegiate years. Um, I'm thinking of swimming, you know, Gwen's coach told her that she had tapped her potential. And he said, you know, that perhaps you want to pursue other options. And for a lot of people, and I think Gwen too, you know, that was very discouraging and hard to hear but she was open to other possibilities and she really wanted to follow her own potential. And she knew that although that had been tapped in swimming, there were these other areas that she could continue to focus on. And so this constant pivot of, you know, we hit a roadblock and what do you do? Do you have a growth mindset or do you say, oh, my, my life is terrible. It's over. You know, I've only done swimming um, or it's my passion. You've, you've got choices in life. And I think that her message is really one of seeing the possibilities of surrounding yourself with people who are supportive and can help. Um, and then of just continuing to push yourself. There's going to be times when things that don't go the way that you want them to. In fact, you know, that feels like how most of life is, but it's how you respond in those situations. Is that what you're thinking, mom? Yes. And I'm also thinking that as we were writing the book, we were thinking about um, kids and adults who have a dream that maybe isn't a sports dream. Maybe somebody wants to be a concert violinist, or they want to be a writer, or they want to be an artist, or they want to be a, a rocket scientist. And the, those same challenges and setbacks and struggles are going to happen for them. And we just wanted kids to see that, that it's not a straight line from wanting to do something to achieving the best in the world that it, you know, there's, there's a lot of different paths and you're going to come up with a lot of different problems and, and things to solve. And hopefully Gwen's story, as Elizabeth just laid out, you know, how to shift focus and, and find big goals and, and good people to surround yourself with that those are lessons for anybody, no matter what their dream is. Totally agreed. You know, this applies across the board. And, you know, as you said, it applies to anyone, regardless of what their dreams are. And I find it very inspirational, you know, just listening to you guys talk about it, you know, that I could apply that to my own life. And, you know, I've recently, you know, been thinking a lot about the setbacks I've had in the last 10 years and what you just said really, really was a positive note for me. And I was thinking about how that could inspire a lot of other people too. I think that's the hope. You know, the the first book that we wrote, like you mentioned, Go Gwen Go, that was really our family story. And Gwen then said to us, if you guys are going to do another book, I really want it to be for a middle grade audience. And I really want it to be inspirational and something that people can learn from. And, you know, that that's ultimately what we hope. Mm-hmm, definitely. So the third question, how did the collaboration between you two work? What was the writing process like and how did you divide the workload? I gave mom all the things I didn't want to do and said, <laughs> you do the, that stuff. 
We actually have a history of writing together. Um, we've written a lot of articles and we've served as each other's editor for many years. In fact, um, Elizabeth and I, when I was working, we taught in the same high school. And so we each had things that we needed to write. Um, I was teaching choir and so I had concert programs and bios and um, music notes to, to fill in to, with programs. Um, and Elizabeth had things that she was publishing and, and we were in the same building. And so she'd walk down and first she'd ask me to buy her lunch in the cafeteria. <laughs> and then we would, we'd exchange projects. And, and so we, um, we, we've done this a lot. And, you know, to answer your question about how it happens, um, we work in Google Docs and typically one of us will have an idea and just kind of start it. And then we'll send it to the other one who will give feedback on the ideas or the um, not only the content, but kind of the organization. Um, and after kind of the big picture is um, fleshed out, then we go in and do finer line edits and um, work with the language. And we just keep going back and forth and back and forth with these Google Docs. And if we read the book right now, or even a lot of the articles that we've written, if we read them now, we can't really remember who wrote which word because it's just kind of, it, it's really a collaboration. And you might want to, you want to tell her how Gwen fit into the whole thing, Elizabeth? Yeah. She, we were almost like her ghostwriters. Like she had these ideas and then she would bring them to us and then we would work with them to try to get them um, into a story that made sense. I was thinking of one of the big editing points for us was when we decided about the timeline. We have two concurrent timelines. One follows the days leading up to the Rio Olympic race. And then the other timeline flashes back to when Gwen was in elementary school and then a few years later and then flashes back to middle school and then high school and then college and then when she becomes a pro. And I remember when we came to that idea that we were going to use these two timelines, we numbered everything that we had on these note cards and we matched that with the stories. And then we laid them all out on the kitchen table and tried to figure out, okay, which story should go first and how is this going to make sense? That was a huge undertake. Is that how you remember that too, mom? Yes. And it's coming back to me now because we did that with those cards. We laid it out and during this time while we were writing, um, I belonged to a writer's group. And so I was having the writer's group read, read the book as we wrote it. And I think as I remember that first timeline was very confusing for the readers. They just, you know, the, we just didn't have the chronology quite right. And they couldn't figure out where we were flashing back to. And, and so then we came back and we made more flashcards and rearranged the whole thing and got it to the point where, you know, the average reader who maybe didn't know anything about triathlon would actually understand what was happening. We also added in sidebars and just these little boxes of information. In addition to that, we have other artifacts like letters that Gwen writes to herself um, when she was a younger person, like lessons that she wish she knew or things to think about, and then also letters to the reader. And so we had all of these other elements that we were trying to figure out where do they make sense within the book? Like if a kid doesn't know what a triathlon is, they're not gonna know elements like transition or clipping in on the bike or what it means to have a road bike versus a mountain bike. And so all of these other things we were trying to lay out within the manuscript, it was a really large undertaking. And I remember thinking like, 
what are we doing and how is it ever going to come together? Um, but we would, we live in the same city. And so I would often come over and food is a common theme. Clearly, I would say, mom, make me dinner. And then we would work on the book together for a few hours, um, at least once a week, sometimes more than that. In addition to all of the stuff that we were doing every day on the Google Docs. I see. that That is really, really interesting. I love how you guys do it online as well as in person. I think that's really collaborative. And, you know, it gives you a better idea of how to tackle things. Because, you know, when something is just entirely online, I feel like sometimes it can be really difficult to organize things. Yeah. And I think you catch more mistakes as well when you're looking at it on paper. Um, and so we would also do that. We'd print out chapters and then we would read them aloud. And there too, we would okay, this doesn't make sense here, or this mistake that we didn't see on the screen is really apparent on the paper. Or when you're reading it out loud, you can tell, oh, that dialogue isn't natural, or just other things will pop out. Definitely. Reading out is definitely something someone should do before they publish a book, because it can really show you where the logic flaws are, or how it sounds to someone who doesn't know the topic. Because when you're just looking at it online, you know, it you already know it so well because you've looked at it so many times. So when you read it out loud, it's like giving it a different look from a different angle. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. Even repeated words. You know, we would, when you're reading it out loud, you, and you come to a, a word that you've used in that sentence and it comes up again, all of a sudden your ear just hears that. And it sounds like I need a new word there. Mm-hmm, definitely. So how did you guys publish your book? How did you find your publisher? Did you find them online or in person? How was the editing process like once you signed a contract with the publisher? And how much freedom did you get to edit the book? That's a lot of questions. <laughs> we um, It really is an interesting story. We First, we signed up with for some sessions on marketing with a local um, professional writer. And she kind of took us through, I think, the traditional route of um, looking at um books that compile lists of publishers and narrowing it down to the ones that would publish um, a book similar to ours. And then we just sent out a lot of queries, got many of them were, we were just ghosted. They just didn't even answer. A few asked for to see the full manuscript um, and we just kept sending them out. Um, and I think we were sort of at the tail end. We were kind of thinking, well, you know, maybe this isn't going to go anywhere. And then Somebody at Cardinal Publishers, one of Cardinal Publishers is a group of publishers, somebody who and, and they distribute other publishers work. So they're basically a distribution company. One of their publishers read our query and answered, had a very nice response. And she said, this isn't quite right for me, but we there's another person or another company in our group in Europe that publishes exclusively sports books. And I think this might fit. And because they were um, located in Germany, we just, they hadn't been on our radar, but we said, yes, you know, feel free to forward the query on. And they did. And that's how we found the publisher. It was somebody that we hadn't really even queried in the first place. Um, and it's, it was, that was for the first book, Go Gwen Go. And then when we decided to do the second book, they were also interested in that. And so I, I think it's, you know, that there's a there's a lot of lessons here, but one is a good relationship with a publisher might lead to further books in the future. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, you want to answer the questions about the how 
the editing. Well, I think the first thing that I want to say too is like giving a shout out to all writers. Um, They're this this writing group um, run by Kathy Giorgio in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Um, But she also offers online coaching and online workshops. And she works with people all across the world. And, you know, she was really helpful for us, especially with our first book. Um, Mom went every week to the writers group and brought, um, you know, I don't know how many, what was it like? 3,750 words <laughs> every week. And then we would get all of these critiques on it and um, just, you know, a shout out to her as well. And then what was the other question? About the editing, how much Liz Evans really gave us a lot of freedom in the editing process. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, it was a little bit different, I think, for both books, um, at least the way that I remember it. The first book, I remember she said, we're missing some elements at the beginning of the manuscript. Could you add a story here that does this? Um, and she had, she just had some good ideas um, in that first book that pointed us in a direction, but didn't necessarily say, you know, you have to do this, but just said, I think this will help readers. Um, she also caught some good grammatical things or just had some suggestions. Um, the second book, because we had that those two timelines and because it was for a middle grade audience, we wanted it to look um, in a way that would be appealing to that audience. And so she gave us we, we sent her some ideas of things that we liked, and then she came back with some design elements. Um, and we didn't have a ton of say in terms of modifying those elements, um, but the idea definitely came from us. Um, I remember the, the turnaround time for the second book. Oh, I don't know, we were traveling and we had a lot going on, and so we didn't have a ton of editing come back from Liz Evans at Meyer and Meyer for the second book, which was great. But then it was also like this quick turnaround that was like, okay, well, we want it to be published like in a couple of weeks. And so look at these things really, really quickly. Um, but, you know, I think that that was good. She was happy with the work that we had done. Um, and obviously, you know, that the writer's group and our editing process, I think, um, was part of the reason why we didn't have a lot to do at the end. Mm-hmm. That's that's really wonderful. You know, I think you're right. It's so important to have a close relationship with your with the editor, especially if, you know, you, you are writing about a topic that, you know, you are very passionate about. And it, it can be very disheartening to see someone make so many key changes to something. So it's really important to pick a publisher that is in line with what you are publishing. And, you know, you guys are so lucky that you found them through, you know, an unexpected path. Right, a rejection, a no that then <laughs> led to a yes. You know, it's kind of, it's mirroring Gwen's story that you know you 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 can't have this dream, but maybe there's a different dream. Um, and that that publisher specializes in sports publishing, and so I think that that's also something to think about is the themes matching the publisher. Absolutely. Like the more broad it is, I think the harder it is to get an acceptance because publishers are looking for something that they can market to their audiences. So if it's too broad, they're like, hmm, I don't know if this is a good fit for our people. Right. So then you, the closer it is to what they want, the easier it is to pitch to them. And also the easier it is for you to express yourself fully and not have a bunch of edits as well. Right. And I think, um, some of it is just timing. I remember with the first book, um, we had looked at their catalog of books and most of them were how to, you know, how, how to ski A to Z and, you know, how to coach soccer. And it was all these very specific how to's. And we were writing a memoir, our family's memoir. But when we 
when we when they first called us and we talked about it, they said, well, actually, we're looking at adding some things to our list about, you know, kind of narrative stories and, and memoirs and things. So, you know, it was the right publisher and at the right time. And they were just looking for what we were doing. And I think that Europe, too, has a, a bigger following of triathlon um, in the United States. You know, it's basketball and gymnastics and football. And it, they're not very many people even know what triathlon is. And so we were lucky that here was this publisher who who knew that there was an audience, be it, you know, small. But there <laughs> there were people out there who were interested in this sport. Mm-hmm. Right. So... You've also written a book about Korean poetry, Sijo, Korea's poetry form. What inspired you to write about Sijo? Oh boy, that's a long story. My <laughs> so I teach high school creative writing and I'm always looking for places for my students to send their work. I want them to practice what it means to be a professional writer. So we enter writing competitions, we send pieces off to literary magazines and journals and about 10, 15 years ago now, I stumbled upon a Shijo poetry contest. It was sponsored by the Shejong Cultural Society um, and then co-sponsored by Harvard University. And they asked high school students to write and submit a Shijo. And I had no idea what a Shijo was, um, but I they had a bunch of information on their website. And I read some articles, I looked at some examples, I taught myself, and then I taught my students. And it's a three-line poetic form, kind of like haiku. Um, So it's divided by syllables, but a shijo has 44, 45, or 46 syllables. So you have more room to tell a story, to play with language. Um, And a shijo always has a twist. And so that's a fun element for both writers and readers to consider when they're working on Shijo. So I shared this with my students. Um, They sent off their poems and they had some success in this contest. And Lucy Park, the director of the Shijong Cultural Society, reached out to me and she said, you must be doing something right because your students are placing really well in the competition. And I was like, I don't think. I don't think I am doing anything right. Like, I know nothing about this Korean poetry form. I really just taught myself from your resources. And she, um, she encouraged me, she became a mentor for me, we then continued to, um, to spread the word about Shijo. So the goal of the Shijong Cultural Society is to introduce Americans to Korean culture. And I really fell in love with this poetry form. And I thought it's so accessible for teachers and also students. Um, And haiku, is so popular in America that I think the question then becomes, why can't Shijo be just as popular? And so I started writing articles about Shijo. I started attending conferences and speaking on Shijo. Um, and this slowly evolved into, well, why don't we put all of this information that we have into a book? Um, and so we, Lucy and I brought on mom um, because she's <laughs> my forever writing partner. Um, And we then reached out to all of these Shijo experts and said, you know, could you write us X number of words on this topic? And so then all of these Korean scholars and experts submitted um, essays or articles about Shijo. One was on like uh, Linda Sue Park. I don't know if you know her. She wrote A Long Walk to Water, A Single Shard. She's a Newbery award-winning author. Um, she wrote this section like Shijo makes you smarter. And then we have 
the the Harvard professor, David McCann, who writes about like the history of Shijo or Shijo translations or Shijo in other languages. Um, and so then the three of us, Lucy Park, my mom and myself worked to put the book together in a way that would make sense for readers. And so it's divided into three sections. The first section is basically the history of the form. The second section is lesson plans. So it's intended for teachers, if you want to get an idea of how you might implement this into your classroom. And then the third section, I think is the gold mine. Um, they have a winning Shijo poem from the competition. And then underneath that is a blurb from the author explaining something about their background or maybe why they wrote the poem or their inspiration. And then underneath that, a Shijo expert has explained why that poem is their favorite poem or why that poem won in the competition. You know, I think so many times we read these award-winning pieces and we're like, why did that win? Or what was that person thinking when they wrote it? And so this third section outlines all of that. And mom, you didn't know a whole lot about it, Friar. No, they brought me on basically to do some line editing and to compile the index. Um, and so, and just to find inconsistencies in the book. And so, you know, when you're taking all these ancient Korean names and trying to Americanize them or put them in English, um, different people use different spellings. And so I would, I would go through and just try to make every single name that was spelled maybe slightly different, consistent without, within the book. Um, and so, and then as I was doing that, some of, some of the contributors would want to edit their articles, change some things, add some things. So then I'd have to go back and do it again. And I ended up literally reading the book maybe, I don't know, seven to 10 times. And so I have now learned a lot about Shijo. I feel like I'm up there and I should, I should be writing more Shijo myself because um, it, it really is an, it's an instructional book and an in informational book. And I, I mean, I, I really did enjoy reading it over and over and over again. And I learned a whole lot. And Elizabeth didn't tell you, um, talk about your weekend in Boston. Yeah, week. I was just at the Association of Asian Studies Conference in Boston. Shijo, Korea's Poetry Forum, received the Buchanan Prize. Um, so yeah, it's, it's <laughs> they give it to one book every year. Um, it's instructional materials. Um, about Asia in some way. And so, yeah, Shijo Korea's Poetry Forum just received the Buchanan Prize. I got in late last night um, and it was it was wonderful to hear that people are appreciating the book. Um, and it's a beautiful publication. Like I, and obviously I'm biased, but just the paper is really nice. There's illustrations in there. Um, I'm really proud of the publication and I'm so glad that people are um, interested in it. And we're giving away complimentary copies. So if there's a teacher in the United States who would be interested in learning more about the form, all you have to do is email the Shejong Cultural Society. And I can give you that information for the show notes as well. Um, and Lucy Park will send out a copy of the book to you. Congratulations. That is just amazing. And you know, what a great timing. You just won it last night and you come on today to the podcast to talk about it. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I, it is really cool to see your own book printed out and, you know, with such wonderful illustrations as well. So did the Sejong um, Institution pro um, produce the in in or commission the illustrations or did you find them somehow? So, right. Lucy Park actually knows the illustrator. Um 
like personally, there was a, a connection. And so she reached out and just said, would you be interested in, um, creating some new illustrations, but also perhaps you have some illustrations in your repertoire that we could use. Um, and so the illustrators submitted some to consider for the cover. Um, there were some that matched nicely with some of the poems and then other ones were created specifically for the book. I see. And um, so what was the publisher? Was it the Sejong Institution? No, Um. so... There too, Lucy had a connection um, to a publisher in Korea, Park Young, and they published the book in Korea. And so you can still get it on Amazon in America. Um, and we had a little bit of a shipping delay during all of the, the COVID pandemic stuff, but I think we're figuring it out um, now. There's there's less of a, a backlog. Do you remember when all of that shipping stuff was going on and there were just like, I don't know, ships that were... It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, yeah. It was also interesting just to work in that manuscript because um, it was now Elizabeth and Lucy and I who were all sharing Google Docs. And the publisher did not speak um, English as much as, you know, as much as she would have liked. And so Lucy would get in that Google Doc and type in all this Korean instru instruction to the publisher but then she'd be giving English instruction to us. And it was just an interesting experience to work with all those, the foreign language and everything. Mm -hmm. So and since too, we would oh, meet, we would meet every Sunday um, on zoom, the three of us and there to go through, what did you read? What changes need to be made? Who do we need to follow up with? We just set a really strict schedule. And then no matter what we met on Sunday for, I mean, it was at least an hour, sometimes several hours um, until the book was done. How long did it take for the book to be published from beginning to end? What do you it, think, mom? I, I think we have to count it in years. Right. Because from, you know, I think Lucy had the concept of what she wanted, but then she had to get commitments from all the people who contributed essays and compile all the poems. And um, it, yeah, it was several years. Yes. And like the major working components, I would say at least two years of work, but there were years um, prior to that you know, that we were working on it in, in a way that maybe we didn't even know we were working on it. Um, we had been collecting all of these lesson plans um, after we'd speak at workshops or conferences, people would submit lesson plans and then, you know, reaching back out to them saying, okay, we're putting together a book. Can we use part of it? Or can you make modifications to it? So, you know, the, the real work, I would say several years, but it, it was many before that as well. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely very satisfying to have it published and, you know, win this prestigious award after so many years of meeting on Zoom, Google Docs, and just so much work with so many different people. Exactly. Yes, it's it's a wonderful feeling to have it out there for people to read and enjoy. Mm -hmm. So how was the writing and publishing process compared to the writing process for your books about Gwen? I mean, you said a little bit about it, you know, especially with the foreign language aspect, but were there other aspects that you would like to compare and contrast? Well, I think the Shijo book we edited. Um, and so, you know, that's a, a main difference is the other ones we wrote. And although there are sections in Shijo Korea's poetry form that I wrote, the majority of them, we were putting it all together in a way that made sense. We were the editors of the book. I think there, you know, there were some issues that we 
had to think about as we as we were editing that book too that just you have to know the personality of the writer and i would ask lucy i would i would have an idea about say a sentence or a paragraph that i really thought should be changed but i would have to ask lucy you know do you think it'll be okay to do this? And she might say, well, that person is a little sensitive about um, changing their words. And I think we should leave it as is. And then there'd be others. And she'd say, oh, absolutely. You know, they told me that we should just make it the very best that we can. And they're open to edits. Um, and so we would, we would go by that and then always run it by the original author. But there were just considerations that you have to have when you're dealing with somebody else's words. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, because if there's so many people and then, you know, this publication is an anthology, we, we would have to respect the wishes of all the people there. And it's good that Lucy knew all the wishes of the different people. So you didn't have to personally reach out to each person and ask, hey, are you OK with us editing your stuff? And of course, we did that. Like by the time it was getting close to publication, everyone got a final sort of review. Here's what it is, just making sure that everything looks good. And by that point, people were very happy. But there too, you know, you want it to be consistent. Although there are all these different voices, it's one text. And so you want there to be a flow that makes sense and also a language, a, a syntax, a, a voice that although it changes, it still goes together as the whole book. Mm-hmm. I think that's the hardest part, right? Yes, yes. So what advice did the this Korean Sejong institution provide since they were not, you know, they were not actively providing edits in English? Was it mostly about the structure, the contents? What were they saying? You know, I'm not even sure I remember a lot of it. I um I think some of some of these aspects of the book Lucy just kind of took charge of. Um and I think some of it was formatting. I do remember that now, you know, we were trying to get um depending on how long the lines were in the poems and trying to fit everything on a page, um you know, we would we would make a comment about Oh, I think one example was the editor just compressed all the letters down very close together to get the the line of the poem to fit on the page. And so we were trying to be consistent with that and make everything look visually correct. And so Lucy would go back and forth with the editor about about how to do that. And, you know, they were dealing not only with a different language, but a different alphabet. It doesn't look anything like English on the page. And so a lot of it was just things like that. Um, I remember the M dash, the M dash oh, yes. that their font used didn't look like what ours would look like in an, in typical, typical English text. And so we just, you know, we're making comments with, you know, let's make the M dash a little bit longer or no spaces on either side, just some little elements like that. Um, and then we have there's like boxes or like gray sections of the text. And so we worked with making sure that that was really consistent. And then like, what if the box goes from one page to another? How is that going to look? Um, but the the publisher was really great in terms of sticking to our vision and allowing um, our, our book to, to really speak for itself. And they, they too, you know, they wanted the book to be as good as it could and worked worked really well. Everyone, I think, did even though there were so many challenges. <laughs> That's great to hear. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was a wonderful discussion and we learned so much, you know, talking about your three books. And guys, if you want to buy their books, please check them out on Amazon. I provide a links in the description and also links to their websites. Thank you so much for coming on again, Nancy and, and Elizabeth. Thank you for having us. Thank you. If Thank anyone you. is interested in hearing more, please do just reach out to us on social media. Um, our middle grade book, we have a free educator guide. Um, and so that's that's out there as well if any teachers want to use it. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.